Greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Oleander Book Club. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. Here we are. I've got my fan on in the studio, if you're wondering, what's that pleasant white noise? Maybe I could listen to a podcast about that to help me fall asleep during this Thanksgiving vacation where I don't actually go anywhere. Hey, something to help you out, you know, if you're an essential worker from your time off from work, joke, joke, I myself work, uh, my uh, IRL show, uh, job where I work for a living I was recently on Shark Tank, so if you watch Shark Tank, there was a mushroom company that was on there that I guess did really well, and that's that's the company that I currently work for. Hopefully that doesn't timestamp poorly in the future. Anyway, so hey, here we are. We are. I, I want. I want everyone to have something to listen to. As I was saying, so hey. Um, why, why, why don't I have some more Lupin? Why don't I have some more Asa Lupin? And we're going to do that. So enjoy this. And I'm just going to use this intro. So after the one minute 50 mark, if you hear a different number than the last time you listened to it, then it's a new episode. Here we go. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. PGTTCM, Radio Free Oleander. Here we go. Recording by Ted DeLorme, Fort Mill, South Carolina, in September of 2006. The Hollow Needle, Further Adventures of Arsène Lupin by Maurice LeBanc. Translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. Chapter 9. Open Sesame. The Etretat needle was hollow. Was it a natural phenomenon, an excavation produced by internal cataclysms, or by the imperceptible action of the rushing sea and the soaking rain? Or was it a superhuman work executed by human beings? Gauls, Celts, prehistoric men. These, no doubt, were insoluble questions. And what did it matter? The essence of the thing was contained in this fact. The needle was hollow. At forty or fifty yards from that imposing arch, which is called the Port de Val, and which shoots out from the top of the cliff, like the colossal branch of a tree, to take root in the submerged rocks, stands an immense limestone cone, and this cone is no more than the shell of a pointed cap poised upon the empty waters. A prodigious revelation. After Lupin, here was Beautrelet discovering the key to the great riddle that had loomed over more than twenty centuries, a key of supreme importance to whoever possessed it in the days of old, in those distant times when hordes of barbarians rode through and overran the old world. A magic key that opens the Cyclopean cavern to whole tribes fleeing before the enemy. A mysterious key that guards the door of the most inviolable shelter. 
an enchanted key that gives power and ensures preponderance. Because he knows this key, Caesar is able to subdue Gaul. Because they know it, the Normans force their sway upon the country, and from there, later, backed by that support, conquer the neighboring island, conquer Sicily, conquer the East, conquer the New World. Masters of the secret, the kings of England lord it over France, humble her, dismember her, have themselves crowned at Paris. They lose the secret, and the rout begins. Masters of the secret, the kings of France push back and overstep the narrow limits of their dominion, gradually founding a great nation and radiating with glory and power. They forget it, or know not how to use it, and death, exile, ruin follow. An invisible kingdom in midwater and at ten fathoms from land. An unknown fortress, taller than the towers of Notre Dame, and built upon a granite foundation larger than a public square. What strength and what security! From Paris to the sea by the Seine. There, the Havre, the new town, the necessary town. And sixteen miles thence, the hollow needle, the impregnable sanctuary. It is a sanctuary, and also a stupendous hiding place. All the treasures of the kings, increasing from century to century, all the gold of France, all that they extort from the people, all that they snatch from the clergy, all the booty gathered on the battlefields of Europe, lie heaped up in the royal cave. Old Merovingian gold sous, glittering crown pieces, doubloons, ducats, florins, guineas, and the precious stones and the diamonds, and all the jewels and all the ornaments, everything is there. Who could discover it? Who could ever learn the impenetrable secret of the needle? Nobody. And Lupin becomes that sort of really disproportionate being whom we know, that miracle incapable of explanation so long as the truth remains in the shadow. Infinite, though the resources of his genius be, they cannot suffice for the mad struggle which he maintains against society. He needs other, more material resources. He needs a sure place of retreat. He needs the certainty of impunity, the peace that allows of the execution of his plans. Without the hollow needle, Lupin is incomprehensible, a myth, a character in a novel, having no connection with reality. Master of the secret, and of such a secret, he becomes simply a man like another, but gifted with the power of wielding in a superior manner the extraordinary weapon with which destiny has endowed him. So the needle was hollow. It remained to discover how one obtained access to it. From the sea, obviously, there must be on the side of the offing some fissure where boats could land at certain hours of the tide. But on the side of the land, 
Beautrelet lay until ten o'clock at night, hanging over the precipice, with his eyes riveted on the shadowy mass formed by the pyramid, thinking and pondering with all the concentrated effort of his mind. Then he went down to Etretat, selected the cheapest hotel, dined, went up to his room, and unfolded the document. It was the merest child's play to him now to establish its exact meaning. He at once saw that the three vowels of the word Etretat occurred in the first line, in their proper order, and at the necessary intervals. This first line now read as follows, E, A, A, Etretat, A. What words could come before Etretat? Words, no doubt, that refer to the position of the needle with regard to the town. Now the needle stood on the left, on the west. He ransacked his memory, and, recollecting that westerly winds are called Vince de Val on the coast, and that the nearest port was known as the Port de Val, he wrote down N. Aval de Trois. A. The second line was that containing the word demoiselle, and once seeing in front of that word the series of all the vowels that form part of the words la chambre des, he noted the two phrases in aval de traitat, la chambre de demoiselle. The third line gave him more trouble. And it was not until some groping that, remembering the position near the Chambre de Demoiselle of the Fort de Frefosse, he ended by almost completely reconstructing the document. In a vol de Etretat, la Chambre de Demoiselle, sous le Fort de Frefosse, la Aiguille Cruz. These were the four great formulas, the essential and general formulas which you had to know. By means of them, you turned in aval, that is to say, below or west of Etretat, entered the Chambre de Demoiselle, in all probability passed under Fort Frithos, and thus arrived at the needle. How? by means of the indications and measurements that constituted the fourth line. These were evidently the more special formulas to enable you to find the outlet through which you made your way and the road that led to the needle. Beautrelet at once presumed, and his surmise was no more than the logical consequence of the document, that if there really was a direct communication between the land and the obelisk of the needle, the underground passage must start from the Chambre de Demoiselle, pass under Fort Frissos, descend perpendicularly the three hundred feet of cliff, and, by means of a tunnel contrived under the rocks of the sea, end at the hollow needle. Which was the entrance to the underground passage? Did not the two letters D and F so plainly cut point to it and admit to it, with the aid, perhaps, of some ingenious piece of mechanism? 
The whole of the next morning Isidore strolled about Etretat and chatted with everybody he met in order to try and pick up useful information. At last, in the afternoon, he went up the cliff. Disguised as a sailor, he had made himself still younger, and in a pair of trousers too short for him and a fishing jersey, he looked a mere scapegrace of twelve or thirteen. As soon as he entered the cave, he knelt down before the letters. Here a disappointment awaited him. It was no use his striking them, pushing them, manipulating them in every way. They refused to move. And it was not long, in fact, before he became aware that they were really unable to move, and that, therefore, they controlled no mechanism. And yet, and yet they must mean something. Inquiries which he had made in the village went to show that no one had ever been able to explain their existence, and that the Abbe Cochet, in his valuable little book on Etretat, footnote, Les Origines d'Etretat, the Abbe Cochet seems to conclude in the end that the two letters are the initials of a passerby. The revelations now made prove the fallacy of the theory had also tried in vain to solve this little puzzle. But Isidore knew what the learned Norman archaeologist did not know, namely that the same two letters figured in the document on the line containing the indications. Was it a chance coincidence? Impossible. Well, then... An idea suddenly occurred to him, an idea so reasonable, so simple, that he did not doubt its correctness for a second. Were not that D and that F the initials of the two most important words in the document, the words that represented, together with the needle, the essential stations on the road to be followed, the Chambre de Demoiselles, and Fort Frefos, D for Demoiselle, F for Frefos. The connection was too remarkable to be a mere accidental fact. In that case, the problem stood thus. The two letters DF represent the relation that exists between the Chambre de Demoiselle and Fort Frefos. The single letter D, which begins the line, represents the demoiselle, that is to say, the cave in which you have to begin by taking up your position. And the single letter F, placed in the middle of the line, represents Frefos, that is to say, the probable entrance to the underground passage. Between these various signs are two more. First, a sort of irregular rectangle marked with a stripe in the left bottom corner, and next, the figure 19, signs which obviously indicate to those inside the cave the means of penetrating beneath the fort. The shape of this rectangle puzzled Isidore. Was there around him, on the walls of the cave, or at any rate within reach of his eyes, an inscription, anything, whatever, affecting a rectangular shape. He looked for a long time, and was on the point of abandoning that particular scent when his eyes fell upon the little opening pierced in the rock that acted as a window to the chamber. Now the edges of this opening just formed a rectangle, 
corrugated, uneven, clumsy, but still a rectangle. And Beautrelet at once saw that by placing his two feet on the D and the F carved in the stone floor, and this explained the stroke that surmounted the two letters in the document, he found himself at the exact height of the window. He took up his position in this place and gazed out. The window looking landward, as we know, he saw first the path that connected the cave with the land, a path hung between two precipices. And next he caught sight of the foot of the hillock on which the fort stood. To try and see the fort, Beautrelet leaned over to the left, and it was then that he understood the meaning of the curved stripe, the comma that marked the left bottom corner in the document. At the bottom on the left-hand side of the window, a piece of flint projected, and the end of it was curved like a claw. It suggested a regular shooter's mark, and when a man applied his eye to this mark, he saw cut out on the slope of the mound facing him a restricted surface of land occupied almost entirely by an old brick wall, a remnant of the original Fort Frithosa or of the old Roman Opidium built on this spot. Beautrelet ran to this piece of wall, which was perhaps ten yards long. It was covered with grass and plants. There was no indication of any kind visible. And yet that figure 19. He returned to the cave, took from his pocket a ball of string and a tape measure, tied the string to the flint corner, fastened a pebble at the 19th meter, and flung it toward the land side. The pebble at most reached the end of the path. Idiot that I am, thought Beautrelet. Who reckoned by meters in those days? The figure 19 means 19 fathoms or nothing. Having made the calculation, he ran out the twine, made a knot, and felt about on the piece of wall for the exact and necessarily one point at which the knot formed at 37 meters from the window of the demoiselle should touch the frithos wall. In a few moments, the point of contact was established. With his free hand, he moved aside the leaves of Merlin that had grown on the interstices. A cry escaped him. The knot which he held pressed down with his forefinger was in the center of a little cross carved in relief on a brick. And the sign that followed on the figure 19 in the document was a cross. It needed all his willpower to control the excitement with which he was overcome. Hurriedly, with convulsive fingers, he clutched the cross, and, pressing upon it, turned it as he would have turned the spokes of a wheel. The brick heaved. He redoubled his effort. It moved no further. Then, without turning, he pressed harder. He at once felt the brick give away. And suddenly there was the click of a bolt that is released, the sound of a lock opening, and on the right of the brick, to the width of about a yard, the wall swung round on a pivot and revealed the orifice of an underground passage. 
Like a madman, Beautrelet seized the iron door in which the bricks were sealed, pulled it back violently and closed it. Astonishment, delight, fear of being surprised convulsed him his face so as to render it unrecognizable. He beheld the awful vision of all that had happened here, in front of that door during twenty centuries, of all those people initiated into the great secret, who had penetrated through that issue. Celts, Gauls, Romans, Normans, Englishmen, Frenchmen, barons, dukes, kings, and after all of them, Arsène Lupin, and after Lupin himself, Beautrelet. He felt that his brain was slipping away from him. His eyelids fluttered. He fell, fainting, and rolled to the bottom of the slope, to the very edge of the precipice. His task was done, at least the task which he was able to accomplish alone, with his unaided resources. That evening he wrote a long letter to the chief of the detective service, giving a faithful account of the results of his investigations and revealing the secret of the hollow needle. He asked for assistance to complete his work and gave his address. While waiting for the reply, he spent two consecutive nights in the Chambre de Demoiselle. He spent them overcome with fear, his nerves shaken with a terror which was increased by the sounds of the night. At every moment he thought he saw shadows approach in his direction. People knew of his presence in the cave. They were coming. They were murdering him. His eyes, however, staring madly before them, sustained by all the power of his will, clung to the piece of wall. On the first night nothing stirred. But on the second, by the light of the stars and a slender crescent moon, he saw the door open and figures emerge from the darkness. He counted two, three, four, five of them. It seemed to him that those five men were carrying fairly large loads. He followed them for a little way. They cut straight across the fields to the Havre Road and he heard the sound of a motor-car driving away. He retraced his steps, skirting a big farm, but at the turn of the road that ran beside it, he had only just time to scramble up a slope and hide behind some trees. More men passed, four, five men, all carrying packages, and two minutes later another motor snorted. This time he had not the strength to return to his post and he went back to bed. When he woke and had finished dressing, the hotel waiter brought him a letter. He opened it. It contained Ganimard's card. At last, cried Beautrelet, who, after so hard a campaign, was really feeling the need of a comrade in arms. He ran downstairs with outstretched hands. Ganimard took them, looked at him for a moment, and said, "'You're a fine fellow, my lad.' he said. Luck has served me. There's no such thing as luck with him, declared the inspector, who always spoke of Lupin in a solemn tone without mentioning his name. He sat down. So we've got him. Just as we've had him twenty times over, said Beautrelet, laughing. Yes, but today. Today, of course, the case is different. We know his retreat. 
his stronghold, which means when all is said that Lupin is Lupin. He can escape. The Etretat Needle cannot. Why do you suppose that he will escape? asked Ganimard anxiously. Why do you suppose that he requires to escape? replied Beautrelet. There is nothing to prove that he is in the Needle at present. Last night eleven of his men left it. He may be one of the eleven. Ganimard reflected. You are right. The great thing is the hollow needle. For the rest, let us hope that chance will favor us. And now let us talk. He resumed his serious voice, his self-important air, and said, My dear Beautrelet, I have orders to recommend you to observe the most absolute discretion in regard to this matter. Orders from whom? asked Beautrelet jestingly. The prefect of police? Higher than that. The prime minister? Higher. Wow. Ganimard lowered his voice. Beautrelet, I was at the Elysee last night. They look upon this matter as a state secret of the utmost gravity. There are serious reasons for concealing the existence of this citadel. Reasons of military strategy in particular. It might become a revitalizing center, a magazine for new explosives, for lately invented projectiles, for anything of that sort. The secret arsenal of France, in fact. How can they hope to keep a secret like this? In the old days, one man alone held it, the king. Today, already, there are a good few of us who know it without counting Lupin's gang. Still, if we gained only ten years, only five years' silence, those five years may be the saving of us. But in order to capture this citadel, this future arsenal, it will have to be attacked. Lupin must be dislodged. And all this cannot be done without noise. Of course, people will guess something, but they won't know. Besides, we can but try. All right, what's your plan? Here it is, in two words. To begin with, you are not Isidore Beautrelet, and there's no question of Arsène Lupin either. You are, and you remain, a small boy of Etretat, who, while strolling about the place, caught some fellows coming out of an underground passage. This makes you suspect the existence of a flight of steps which cuts through the cliff from top to bottom. Yes, there are several of those flights of steps along the coast. For instance, to the right of Etretat, opposite Beneuville, they showed me the Devil's Staircase, which every bather knows. And I say nothing of the three or four tunnels used by fishermen. So you will guide me and one half of my men. I shall enter alone or a company that remains to be seen. This much is certain that the attack must be delivered that way. If Lupin is not in the needle, we shall fix up a trap in which he will be caught sooner or later. If he is there, if he is there, he will escape from the needle by the other side, the side overlooking the sea. In that case, he will at once be arrested by the other half of my men. 
Yes, but if, as I presume, you choose a moment when the sea is at low ebb, leaving the base of the needle uncovered, the chase will be public, because it will take place before all the men and women fishing for mussels, shrimps, and shellfish who swarm on the rocks round about. That is why I just mean to select the time when the sea is full. In that case, he will make off in a boat. Ah, but I shall have a dozen fishing smacks, each of which will be commanded by one of my men, and we shall collar him. If he doesn't slip through your dozen smacks, like a fish through the meshes. All right, then, I'll sink him. The devil you will. Shall you have guns? Why, yes, of course. There's a torpedo boat at the Havre at this moment. A telegram from me will bring her to the needle at the appointed hour. How proud Lupin will be! A torpedo boat! Well, Monsieur Gurmard, I see that you have provided for everything. We have only to go ahead. When do we deliver the assault? Tomorrow. At night? No, by daylight at the flood tide, as the clock strikes ten in the morning. Capital! Under his show of gaiety, Beautrelet concealed a real anguish of mind. He did not sleep until the morning, but lay pondering over the most impracticable schemes, one after the other. Ganimard had left him in order to go to Ypor, six or seven miles from Etretat, where, for prudence' sake, he had told his men to meet him, and where he chartered twelve fishing smacks with the ostensible object of taking soundings along the coast. At a quarter to ten... Escorted by a body of twelve stalwart men, he met Isidore at the foot of the road that goes up the cliff. At ten o'clock exactly, they reached the skirt of the wall. It was the decisive moment. At ten o'clock exactly. Why, what's the matter with you, Beautrelet? jeered Ganimard. You're quite green in the face. "'It's as well you can't see yourself, Ganimard,' the boy retorted. "'One would think your last hour had come.' "'They both had to sit down, and Ganimard swallowed a few mouthfuls of rum. "'It's not funk,' he said, "'but, by Jove, this is an exciting business. "'Each time that I'm on the point of catching him, "'it takes me like that, in the pit of my stomach. "'A dram of rum?' "'No. "'And if you drop behind?' "'That will mean that I'm dead. <laughs> "'However, we'll see. "'And now open sesame. "'No danger of our being observed, I suppose. "'No, the needle is not so high as the cliff, "'and besides, there's a bend in the ground where we are.' "'Bautrelet went to the wall and pressed upon the brick. "'The bolt was released and the underground passage came in sight. "'By the gleam of the lanterns which they lit, they saw that it was cut in the shape of a vault, and that both the vaulting and the floor itself were entirely covered with bricks. They walked for a few seconds, and suddenly a staircase appeared. Beautrelet counted forty-five brick steps, which the slow action of many footsteps had worn away in the middle. "'Blow!' said Ganimard, holding his head and stopping suddenly, as though he had knocked against something." "'What is it?' "'A door.' "'Bother,' muttered Beautrelet, looking at it. "'And not an easy one to break down, either. "'It's just a solid block of iron.' 
We are done, said Ganimard. There's not even a lock to it. Exactly. That's what gives me hope. Why? A door is made to open, and as this one has no lock, that means that there is a secret way of opening it. And as we don't know the secret, I shall know it in a minute. How? By means of the document, the fourth line has no other object but to solve each difficulty as and when it crops up. And the solution is comparatively easy because it's not written with a view to throwing searchers off the scent, but to assisting them. Comparatively easy? I don't agree with you, cried Ganimard, who has unfolded the document. The number 44 and a triangle with a dot in it, that doesn't tell us much. Yes, yes, it does. Look at the door. You see it strengthened at each corner with a triangular slab of iron. And the slabs are fixed with big nails. Take the left-hand bottom slab and work the nail in the corner. I'll lay ten to one we've hit the mark. You've lost your bet, said Ganimard after trying. Then the figure 44 must mean... In a low voice, reflecting as he spoke, Beautrelet continued, Let me see. Ganimard and I are both standing on the bottom step of the staircase. There are forty-five. Why forty-five when the figure in the document is forty-four? A coincidence? No. In all this business, there is no such thing as a coincidence, at least not an involuntary one. Ganimard, be so good as to move one step higher up. That's it. Don't leave this forty-fourth step. And now I will work the iron nail. And the trick's done, or I'll eat my boots. The heavy door turned on its hinges. A fairly spacious cavern appeared before their eyes. We must be exactly under Fort Frithos, said Beautrelet. We have passed through the different earthy layers by now. There will be no more brick. We are in the heart of the solid limestone. The room was dimly lit by a shaft of daylight that came from the other end. Going up to it, they saw that it was a fissure in the cliff, contrived in a projecting wall and forming a sort of observatory. In front of them, at a distance of fifty yards, the impressive mass of the needle loomed from the waves. On the right, quite close, was the arched buttress of the Porte d'Aval, and on the left, very far away, closing the graceful curve of a large inlet, another rocky gateway, more imposing still, was cut out of the cliff, the Maniport, which was so wide and tall that a three-master could have passed through it with all sail set. Behind and everywhere, the sea. "'I don't see our little fleet,' said Beautrelet. "'I know,' said Ganimard. "'The port of all hides the whole of the coast of Etretat-Niport. "'But look, over there in the offing, that black line level with the water. "'Well?' That's our fleet of war, torpedo boat number 25. With her there, Lupin is welcome to break loose. If he wants to study the landscape at the bottom of the sea... A baluster marked the entrance to the staircase near the fissure. 
They started on their way down. From time to time a little window pierced the wall of the cliff, and each time they caught sight of the needle, whose mass seemed to them to grow more and more colossal. A little before reaching high water level, the windows ceased, and all was dark. Isidore counted the steps aloud. At the three hundred and fifty-eight, they emerged into a wider passage, which was barred by another iron door, strengthened with slabs and nails. We know all about this, said Beautrelet. The document gives us three, five, seven, and a triangle dotted on the right. We have only to repeat the performance. The second door obeyed like the first. A long, a very long tunnel appeared, lit up at intervals by the gleam of a lantern swung from the vault. The walls oozed moisture, and drops of water fell to the ground, so that, to make walking easier, a regular pavement of planks had been laid from end to end. We are passing under the sea, said Beautrelet. Are you coming, Ganimard? Without replying, the inspector ventured into the tunnel, followed the wooden foot plank, and stopped before a lantern which he took down. The utensils may date back to the Middle Ages, but the lighting is modern, he said. Our friends use incandescent mantles. He continued his way. The tunnel ended in another and a larger cave, with, on the opposite side, the first steps of a staircase that led upward. It's the ascent of the needle beginning, said Ganimard. This is more serious. But one of his men called him. There's another flight here, sir, on the left. And immediately afterward they discovered a third on the right. The deuce, muttered the inspector. This complicates matters. If we go by this way, they'll make tracks by that. Shall we separate? asked Beautrelet. No, no, that would mean weakening ourselves. It would be better for one of us to go ahead and scout. I will, if you like. Very well, Beautrelet, you go. I will remain with my men. Then there will be no fear of anything. There may be other roads through the cliff than that by which we came, and several roads also through the needle. But it is certain that between the cliff and the needle there is no communication except the tunnel. Therefore they must pass through this cave, and so I shall stay here till you come back. Go ahead, Beautrelet, and be prudent. At the least alarm, scoot back again. Isidore disappeared briskly up the middle staircase. At the thirtieth step, a door, an ordinary wooden door, stopped him. He seized the handle, turned it. The door was not locked. He entered a room that seemed to him very low, owing to its immense size. Lit by powerful lamps and supported by squat pillars, with long vistas showing between them, it had nearly the same dimensions as the needle itself. It was crammed with packing cases and miscellaneous objects, pieces of furniture, oak settees, chests, credence tables, strong boxes, a whole confused heap of the kind which one sees in the basement of an old curiosity shop. On his right and left, Beautrelet perceived the wells of two staircases, the same, no doubt, that started from the cave below. He could easily have gone down, therefore, and told Ganimard. 
but a new flight of stairs led upward in front of him, and he had the curiosity to pursue his investigations alone. Thirty more steps, a door, and then a room not quite so large as the last, Beautrelet thought, and again opposite him an ascending flight of stairs. Thirty steps more, a door, a smaller room. Beautrelet grasped the plan of the works executed inside the needle. It was a series of rooms placed one above the other and, therefore, gradually decreasing in size. They all served as storerooms. In the fourth, there was no lamp. A little light filtered in through clefts in the walls, and Beautrelet saw the sea some thirty feet below him. At that moment, he felt himself so far from Ganimard that a certain anguish began to take hold of him, and he had to master his nerves lest he should take to his heels. No danger threatened him, however, and the silence around him was even so great that he asked himself whether the whole needle had not been abandoned by Lupin and his confederates. I shall not go beyond the next floor, he said to himself. Thirty stairs again, and a door. This door was lighter in construction and modern in appearance. He pushed it open gently, quite prepared for flight. There was no one there. But the room differed from the others in its purpose. There were hangings on the walls, rugs on the floor. Two magnificent sideboards laden with gold and silver plate stood facing each other. The little windows contrived in the deep, narrow cleft were furnished with glass panes. In the middle of the room was a richly decked table with a lace-edged cloth, dishes of fruits and cakes, champagne in decanters and flowers, heaps of flowers. Three places were laid around the table. Beautrelet walked up. On the napkins were cards with the names of the party. He read first, Arsène Lupin. Madame Arsène Lupin. He took up the third card and started back with surprise. It bore his own name, Isidore Beautrelet. End of chapter 9「The Hollow Needle – Further Adventures of Arsène Lupin」by Maurice Leblanc Translated by Alexander Texiero de Matos Chapter 10 – The Treasures of the Kings of France A curtain was drawn back Good morning, my dear Beautrelet. You're a little late. Lunch was fixed for twelve. However, it's only a few minutes. But what's the matter? Don't you know me? Have I changed so much? In the course of his fight with Lupin, Beautrelet had met with many surprises, and he was still prepared, at the moment of the final catastrophe, to experience any number of further emotions. But the shock which he received this time was utterly unexpected. It was not astonishment, but stupefaction, terror. The man who stood before him, the man whom the brutal force of events compelled him to look upon as Arsène Lupin, was 
Valmarat. Valmarat, the owner of the Chateau de l'Aiguille. Valmarat, the very man to whom he had applied for assistance against Arsène Lupin. Valmarat, his companion on the expedition to Crozon. Valmarat, the plucky friend who had made Raymond's escape possible by telling one of Lupin's accomplices, or pretending to tell him, in the dusk of the great hall. And Valmarat was Lupin. You, you, so it's you, he stammered. Why not? exclaimed Lupin. Did you think that you knew me for good and all because you had seen me in the guise of a clergyman or under the features of Monsieur Massibon? Alas, when a man selects the position in society which I occupy, he must needs make use of his little social gifts. If Lupin were not able to change himself at will into a minister of the Church of England or a member of the Academy of Inscriptions and Belles Lettres, it would be a bad lookout for Lupin. Now Lupin, the real Lupin, is here before you, Beautrelet. Take a good look at him. But then, if it's you, then Mademoiselle... Yes, Beautrelet, as you say. He again drew back the hanging, beckoned and announced. Madame Saint Lupin. Ah, oh, murmured the lad, confounded in spite of everything. Mademoiselle de Saint-Véron. No, no, protested Lupin. Madame Arsène Lupin, or rather, if you prefer, Madame Louis Valmarat, my wedded wife, married to me in accordance with the strictest forms of law, and all thanks to you, my dear Beautrelet. He held out his hand to him. All my acknowledgments, and no ill will on your side, I trust? Strange to say, Beautrelet felt no ill will at all, no sense of humiliation, no bitterness. He realized so strongly the immense superiority of his adversary, that he did not blush at being beaten by him. He pressed the offered hand. Luncheon is served, ma'am. A butler had placed a tray of dishes on the table. You must excuse us, Beautrelet. My chef is away, and we can only give you a cold lunch. Beautrelet felt very little inclined to eat. He sat down, however, and was enormously interested in Lupin's attitude. How much exactly did he know? Was he aware of the danger he was running? Was he ignorant of the presence of Ganimard and his men? And Lupin continued. Yes, thanks to you, my dear friend. Certainly Raymond and I loved each other from the first. Just so, my boy. Raymond's abduction, her imprisonment, were mere humbug. We loved each other. But neither she nor I, when we were free to love, would allow a casual bond at the mercy of chance to be formed between us. The position, therefore, was hopeless for Lupin. Fortunately, it ceased to be so if I resumed my identity as the Louis Valmarat that I had been from a child. It was then that I conceived the idea, as you refused to relinquish your quest and had found the Chateau de l'Aguille of profiting by your obstinacy and my silliness. Bah! Anyone would have been caught as you were. So you were really able to succeed because I screened you and assisted you? Of course. How could anyone suspect Valmarat of being Lupin when Valmarat was Beautrelet's friend and after Valmarat had snatched from Lupin's clutches the girl whom Lupin loved? And how charming it was. Such delightful memories. The expedition to Crozon, the bouquets we found, my pretended love letter to Raymond. And later the precautions which I, Valmarat, had to take against myself, Lupin, before my marriage. And the night of your great banquet, Beautrelet, when you fainted in my arms. Oh, what memories! There was a pause. Beautrelet watched Raymond. She had listened to Lupin without saying a word and looked at him with eyes in which he read love, passion and something else besides. Something which the lad could not define, a sort of 
anxious embarrassment and a vague sadness. But Lupin turned his eyes upon her and she gave him an affectionate smile. Their hands met over the table. What do you say to the way I have arranged my little home, Beautrelet? cried Lupin. There's a style about it, isn't there? I don't pretend that it's as comfortable as it might be. And yet some have been quite satisfied with it, and not the least of mankind either. Look at the list of distinguished people who have owned the needle in their time and who thought it an honour to leave a mark of their sojourn. On the walls, one below the other, were carved the following names. Julius Caesar, Charlemagne Rollo, William the Conqueror, Richard Coeur de Lyon, Louis XI, Francis I, Henry IV, Louis XIV, Arsène Lupin. Whose name will figure after ours, he continued. Alas, the list is closed. From Caesar to Lupin, and there it ends. Soon the nameless mob will come to visit the strange citadel. And to think that, but for Lupin, all this would have remained forever unknown to men. Ah, Beautrelet, what a feeling of pride was mine on the day when I first set foot on this abandoned soil. To have found the lost secret and become its master, its sole master. To inherit such an inheritance. To live in the needle after all those kings. He was interrupted by a gesture of his wife's. She seemed greatly agitated. There is a noise, she said. Underneath us, you can hear it. It's the lapping of the water, said Lupin. No, indeed, it's not. I know the sound of the waves. This is something different. What would you have it be, darling? said Lupin, smiling. I invited no one to lunch except Beautrelet. And addressing the servant, Charolais, did you lock the staircase doors behind the gentleman? Yes, sir, and fasten the bolts. Lupin rose. Come, Raymond, don't shake like that. Why, you're quite pale. He spoke a few words to her in an undertone, as also to the servant, drew back the curtain and sent them both out of the room. The noise below grew more distinct. It was a series of dull blows repeated at intervals. Beautrelet thought, Ganimard has lost patience and is breaking down the doors. Lupin resumed the thread of his conversation, speaking very calmly and as though he had not really heard. By Jove, the needle was badly damaged when I succeeded in discovering it. One could see that no one had possessed the secret for more than a century since Louis XVI and the Revolution. The tunnel was threatening to fall in. The stairs were in a shocking state. The water was trickling in from the sea. I had to prop up and strengthen and rebuild the whole thing. Beautrelet could not help asking. When you arrived, was it empty? Very nearly. The kings did not use the needle as I have done as a warehouse. As a place of refuge, then? Yes, no doubt, in times of invasion and during the civil wars. But its real destination was to be, how shall I put it, the strong room on the bank of the kings of France. The sound of blows increased more distinctly now. Ganimard must have broken down the first door and was attacking the second. There was a short silence and then more blows nearer still. It was the third door. Two remained. Through one of the windows, Beautrelet saw a number of fishing smacks sailing round the needle, and not far away, floating on the waters like a great black fish, the torpedo boat. What a row! exclaimed Lupin. One can't hear oneself speak. Let's go upstairs, shall we? It may interest you to look over the needle. They climbed to the floor above, which was protected, like the others, by a door which Lupin locked behind him. My picture gallery, he said. The walls were covered with canvases on which Beautrelet recognized the most famous signatures. There were Raphael's Madonna of the Agnus Dei, Andrea de Sato's portrait of Lucrezia Fidi, 
Titian Salome, Botticelli's Madonna, and Angels and number of Tintoretto's, Carpaccio's, Rembrandt's, Velazquez. What fine copies! said Beautrelet approvingly. Lupin looked at him with an air of stupefaction. What copies? You must be mad. The copies are in Madrid, my dear fellow, in Florence, Venice, Munich, Amsterdam. Then these are the original pictures, my lad, patiently collected in all the museums of Europe, where I have replaced them like an honest man with first-rate copies. But some day or other, some day or other, the fraud will be discovered. Well, they will find my signature on each canvas at the back, and they will know that it was I who have endowed my country with the original masterpieces. After all, I have only done what Napoleon did in Italy. Oh, look, Beautrelet! Here are Monsieur de Gevres's four Rubenses. The knocking continued within the hollow of the needle without ceasing. I can't stand this," said Lupin. "Let's go higher. A fresh staircase, a fresh door. The tapestry room," Lupin announced. The tapestries were not hung on the walls, but rolled, tied up with cord, ticketed. And in addition, there were parcels of old fabrics which Lupin unfolded: wonderful brocades, admirable velvets, soft faded silks, churched vestments worn with silver and gold. They went higher still, and Beautrelet saw the room containing the clocks and other timepieces, the book room, oh, the splendid bindings, the precious undiscoverable volumes, the unique copies stolen from the great public libraries, the lace room, the knick-knack room, and each time the circumference of the room grew smaller. And each time now the sound of knocking was more distant. Ganimard was losing ground. This is the last room," said Lupin. "The treasury. This one was quite different. It was round also, but very high and conical in shape. It occupied the top of the edifice, and its floor must have been fifteen or twenty yards below the extreme point of the needle. On the cliff side there was no window, but on the side of the sea, whence there were no indiscreet eyes to fear. Two glazed openings admitted plenty of light. The ground was covered with a parqueted flooring of rare wood, forming concentric patterns. Against the wall stood glass cases and a few pictures. The pearls of my collection," said Lupin. "All that you have seen so far is for sale. Things come and things go. That's business. But here in this sanctuary, everything is sacred. There is nothing here but choice, essential pieces—the best of the best, priceless things." Look at these jewels, Beautrelet. Chaldean amulets, Egyptian necklaces, Celtic bracelets, Arab chains. Look at these statuettes, Beautrelet. At this Greek Venus, this Corinthian Apollo. Look at these tanagras, Beautrelet. All the real tanagras are here. Outside this glass case, there is not a single genuine tanagra statuette in the whole wide world. What a delicious thing to be able to say, Beautrelet. Do you remember Thomas and his gang of church pillagers in the south? Agents of mine, by the way. Well, here is the Ambazac reliquary, the real one, Beautrelet. Do you remember the Louvre scandal, the tiara which was admitted to be false, invented and manufactured by a modern artist? Here is the tiara of Saint Afanis, the real one, Beautrelet. Look, Beautrelet, look with all your eyes. Here is the marvel of marvels, the supreme masterpiece, the work of no mortal brain. Here is Leonardo's Gioconda. The real one, Neil Beautrelet. Neil, all womankind stands before you in this picture. There was a long silence between them. Below, the sound of blows drew nearer. Two or three doors, no more, separated them from Ganimard. In the offing, they saw the black back of the torpedo boat and the fishing smacks cruising to and fro. The boy asked, 
And the treasure? Ah, my little man, that's what interests you most. None of those masterpieces of human art can compete with the contemplation of the treasure as a matter of curiosity, eh? And the whole crowd will be like you. Come, you shall be satisfied. He stamped his foot and in so doing made one of the discs composing the floor pattern turn right over. Then, lifting it as though it were the lid of a box, he uncovered a sort of large round bowl dug in the thickness of the rock. It was empty. A little farther, he went through the same performance. Another large bowl appeared. It was also empty. He did this three times over again. The three other bowls were empty. Eh? grinned Lupin. What a disappointment! Under Louis the Fortieth, under Henry the Fourth, under Richelieu, the five bowls were full. But think of Louis the Fourteenth, the folly of Versailles, the wars, the great disasters of the reign. And think of Louis the Fifteenth, the spendthrift king with his pompadour and his dubarry. How they must have drawn on the treasure in those days. With what thieving claws they must have scratched at the stone. You see, there's nothing left. He stopped. Yes, Beautrelet, there is something. The sixth hiding place. This one was intangible. Not one of them dared touch it. It was the very last resource. The nest egg. The something put by for a rainy day. Look, Beautrelet. He stooped and lifted up the lid. An iron box filled the bowl. Lupin took from his pocket a key with a complicated bit and wards and opened the box. A dazzling sight presented itself. Every sort of precious stone sparkled there. Every color gleamed. The blue of the sapphires, the red of the rubies, the green of the emeralds, the yellow of the topazes. Look, look, little Beautrelet. They have squandered all the cash, all the gold, all the silver, all the crown pieces and all the ducats and all the doubloons. But the chest with the jewels has remained intact. Look at the settings. They belong to every period, to every century, to every country. The dowries of the queens are here. Each brought her share. Margaret of Scotland and Charlotte of Savoy, Duchesses of Austria, Eleanor, Elizabeth, Marie-Therese, Mary of England and Catherine de Medicis, and all the arch, Marie-Antoinette. Look at those pearls, Beautrelet, and those diamonds. Look at the size of the diamonds. Not one of them is but worthy of an empress. The pit diamond is no finer. He rose to his feet and held up his hand as one taking an oath. Beautrelet, you shall tell the world that Lupin has not taken a single one of the stones that were in the royal chest. Not a single one. I swear it on my honour. I had no right to. They are the fortune of France. Below them, Ganimard was making all speed. It was easy to judge by the reverberation of the blows that his men were attacking the last door but one, the door that gave access to the knick-knack room. Let us leave the chest open, said Lupin. And all the cavities too, all those little empty graves. He went round the room, examined some of the glass cases, gazed at some of the pictures, and as he walked, said pensively, "How sad it is to leave all this! What a wrench! The happiest hours of my life have been spent here, alone in the presence of these objects which I loved, and my eyes will never behold them again, and my hands will never touch them again." His drawn face bore such an expression of lassitude upon it that Beautrelet felt a vague sort of pity for him. Sorrow in that man must assume larger proportions than in another, even as joy did, or pride, or humiliation. He was now standing by the window and, with his finger pointing to the horizon, said, "What is sadder still is that I must abandon that, all that. 
how beautiful it is! The boundless sea, the sky. On either side, the cliffs of Etretat with their three natural archways. The Port d'Amont, the Port d'Aval, the Manaport. So many triumphal arches for the master. And the master was I. I was the king of the story, the king of fairyland, the king of the hollow needle. A strange and supernatural kingdom. From Caesar to Lupin, what a destiny! He burst out laughing. <laughs> king of fairyland! Why not say king of Ito at once? What nonsense! King of the world! Yes, that's more like it. From this topmost point of the needle, I ruled the globe. I held it in my claws like a prey. Lift the tiara of Saitofani's Beautrelet. You see those two telephones? The one on the right communicates with Paris, a private line. The one on the left with London, a private line. Through London, I am in touch with America, Asia, Australia, South Africa. In all those continents, I have my officers, my agents, my jackals, my scouts. I drive in international trade. I hold the great market in arts and antiquities, the world's fair. Ah, Beautrelet, there are moments when my power turns my head. I feel intoxicated with strength and authority. The door gave way below. They heard Ganimard and his men running about and searching. After a moment, Lupin continued in a low voice. And now it's over. A little girl crossed my path. A girl with soft hair and wistful eyes and an honest, yes, an honest soul. And it's over. I myself am demolishing the mighty edifice. All the rest seems absurd and childish to me. Nothing counts but her hair and her wistful eyes and her honest little soul. The men came up the staircase. A blow shook the door, the last door. Lupin seized the boy sharply by the arm. Do you understand, Beautrelet, why I let you have things your own way when I could have crushed you time after time weeks ago? Do you understand how you succeeded in getting as far as this? Do you understand that I had given each of my men his share of the plunder when you met them the other night on the cliff? You do understand, don't you? The hollow needle is the great adventure. As long as it belongs to me, I remain the great adventurer. Once the needle is recaptured, it means that the past and I are parted, and that the future begins. A future of peace and happiness in which I shall have no occasion to blush when Raymond's eyes are turned upon me. A future. He turned furiously towards the door. Stop that noise, Ganimard, will you? I haven't finished my speech. The blows came faster. It was like the sound of a beam that was being hurled against the door. Beautrelet, mad with curiosity, stood in front of Lupin and awaited events, without understanding what Lupin was doing or contemplating. To give up the needle was all very well, but why was he giving up himself? What was his plan? Did he hope to escape from Ganimard? And on the other hand, where was Raymond? Lupin, meantime, was murmuring dreamily, An honest man. Arsène Lupin, an honest man, no more robbery, leading the life of everybody else. And why not? There is no reason why I should not meet with the same success. But do stop that now, Ganimard. Don't you know, you ass, that I'm uttering historic words and that Beautrelet is taking them in for the benefit of posterity? He laughed. I'm wasting my time. Ganimard will never grasp the use of my historic words. He took a piece of red chalk, put a pair of steps to the wall, and wrote in large letters. Arsène Lupin gives and bequeaths to France all the treasures contained in the hollow needle, on the sole condition that these treasures be housed at the Musée du Louvre in rooms which shall be known as the Arsène Lupin rooms. Now, he said, my conscience is at ease. France and I are quits. The attackers were striking with all their might. One of the panels burst in two. 
A hand was put through and fumbled for the lock. Thunder, said Lupin. That idiot of a Ganimard is capable of effecting his purpose for once in his life. He rushed to the lock and removed the key. Sold, old chap. The door's tough. I have plenty of time. Beautrelet, I must say goodbye. And thank you. For really, you could have complicated the attack, but you're so tactful. While speaking, he moved towards a large triptych by Van der Weyden, representing the wise men of the East. He shut the right-hand panel, and in so doing, exposed a little door concealed behind it and seized the handle. Good luck to your hunting, Ganimard, and kind regards at home. A pistol shot resounded. Lupin jumped back. Ah, you rascal, full in the heart. Have you been taking lessons? You've done for the wise men, full in the heart, smashed to smithereens like a pipe at the fair. Lupin, surrender! roared Ganimard, with his eyes glittering and his revolver showing through the broken panel of the door. Surrender, I say! Did the old guard surrender? If you stir a limb, I'll blow your brains out. Nonsense, you can't get me here. As a matter of fact, Lupin had moved away, and though Ganimard was able to fire straight in front of him through the breach in the door, he could not fire, still less take aim, on the side where Lupin stood. Lupin's position was a terrible one for all that, because the outlet on which he was relying, the little door behind the triptych, opened right in front of Ganimard. To try to escape meant to expose himself to the detective's fire, and there were five bullets left in the revolver. By Jove, he said, laughing, there's a slump in my shares this afternoon. You've done a nice thing. Lupin, old fellow, you wanted a last sensation and you've gone a bit too far. You shouldn't have talked so much. He flattened himself against the wall. A further portion of the panel had given way under the men's pressure, and Ganimard was less hampered in his movements. Three yards, no more, separated the two antagonists, but Lupin was protected by a glass case with a gilt wood framework. Why don't you help, Beautrelet? cried the old detective, gnashing his teeth with rage. Why don't you shoot him instead of staring at him like that? Isidore, in fact, had not budged, had remained till that moment an eager but passive spectator. He would have liked to fling himself into the contest with all his strength and to bring down the prey which he held at his mercy. He was prevented by some inexplicable sentiment. But Ganimard's appeal for assistance shook him. His hand closed on the butt of his revolver. If I take part in it, he thought, Lupin is lost, and I have the right. It's my duty. Their eyes met. Lupin's were calm, watchful, almost inquisitive, as though in the awful danger that threatened him. He were interested only in the moral problem that held the young man in its clutches. Would Isidore decide to give the finishing stroke to the defeated enemy? The door cracked from top to bottom. Help, Beautrelet, we've got him! Genemar bellowed. Isidore raised his revolver. What happened was so quick that he knew of it, so to speak, only by the result. He saw Lupin bob down and run along the wall, skimming the door right under the weapon which Ganimard was vainly brandishing. And he felt himself suddenly flung to the ground, picked up the next moment and lifted by an invincible force. Lupin held him in the air like a living shield behind which he hid himself. Ten to one that I escape, Ganimard. Lupin, you see, has never quite exhausted his resources. He had taken a couple of brisk steps backwards to the triptych. Holding Beautrelet with one hand flat against his chest, with the other he cleared the passage and closed the little door behind them. A steep staircase appeared before their eyes. Come along, said Lupin, pushing Beautrelet before him. The land forces are beaten. Let us turn our attention to the French fleet. After Waterloo, Trafalgar. You're having some fun for your money, eh, my lad? Oh, how good. Listen to them knocking in the triptych now. It's too late, my children. But hurry along, Beautrelet.
The staircase dug out in the wall of the needle, dug in its very crust, turned round and round the pyramid, encircling it like the spiral of a toboggan slide. Each hurrying the other, they clattered down the treads, taking two or three at a bound. Here and there, a ray of light trickled through a fissure, and Beautrelet carried away the vision of the fishing smacks, hovering a few dozen fathoms off, and of the black torpedo boat. They went down and down, Isidore in silence, Lupin still bubbling over with merriment. I should like to know what Ganimard is doing. Is he tumbling down the other staircases to bar the entrance to the tunnel against me? No, he's not such a fool as that. He must have left four men there, and four men are sufficient. He stopped. Listen, they're shouting up above. That's it, they've opened the window and are calling to their fleet. Why, look, the men are busy on board the smacks. They're exchanging signals. The torpedo boat is moving. Dear old torpedo boat, I know you, you're from the Havre. Guns crew to the guns. Hello, there's the commander. How are you, Duguay Trouin? He put his arm through a cleft and waved his handkerchief. Then he continued his way downstairs. The enemy's fleet have all set sail, he said. We shall be boarded before we know where we are. Heavens, what fun! They heard the sound of voices below them. They were just then approaching the level of the sea, and they emerged almost at once into a large cave, in which two lanterns were moving about in the dark. A woman's figure appeared and threw itself on Lupin's neck. Quick, quick, I was so nervous about you. What have you been doing? But you're not alone, Lupin reassured her. It's our friend Beautrelet. Just think, Beautrelet had the tact, but I'll talk about that later. There's no time now. Charolais, are you there? That's right, and the boat? The boat's ready, sir, Charolais replied. Fire away, said Lupin. In a moment, the noise of a motor crackled, and Beautrelet, whose eyes were gradually becoming used to the gloom, ended by perceiving that they were on a sort of quay at the edge of the water and that a boat was floating before them. A motorboat, said Lupin, completing Beautrelet's observations. This knocks you all of a heap, eh, Isidore, old chap? You don't understand. Still, you have only to think. As the water before your eyes is no other than the water of the sea, which filters into this excavation each high tide, the result is that I have a safe little private roadstead all to myself. But it's closed, Beautrelet protested. No one can get in or out. Yes, I can, said Lupin, and I'm going to prove it to you. He began by handing Raymond in. Then he came back to fetch Beautrelet. The lad hesitated. Are you afraid? asked Lupin. What of? Of being sunk by the torpedo boat. No. Then you're considering whether or not it's your duty to stay with Ganimard, law and order, society and morality, instead of going off with Lupin, shame, infamy and disgrace. Exactly. Unfortunately, my boy, you have no choice. For the moment, they must believe the two of us dead, and leave me the peace to which a prospective, honest man is entitled. Later on, when I have given you your liberty, you can talk as much as you please. I shall have nothing more to fear. By the way in which Lupin clutched his arm, Beautrelet felt that all resistance was useless. Besides, why resist? Had he not discovered and handed over the hollow needle? Why did he care about the rest? Had he not the right to humour the irresistible sympathy with which, in spite of everything, this man inspired him? The feeling was so clear in him that he was half inclined to say to Lupin, Look here, you're running another, a more serious danger. Holmlock Shears is on your track. Come along, said Lupin, before Isidore had made up his mind to speak. He obeyed and let Lupin lead him to the boat, the shape of which struck him as peculiar, and its appearance quite unexpected. Once on deck, they went down a little steep staircase, or rather a ladder hooked onto a trapdoor, which closed above their heads. 
At the foot of the ladder, brightly lit by a lamp, was a very small saloon where Raymond was waiting for them and where the three had just room to sit down. Lupin took the mouthpiece of a speaking tube from a hook and gave the order. Let her go, Charolais. Isidore had the unpleasant sensation which one feels when going down in a lift. The sensation of the ground vanishing beneath you. The impression of emptiness, space. This time it was the water retreating, and space opened out slowly. We're sinking, eh? grinned Lupin. Don't be afraid, we've only to pass from the upper cave where we were to another little cave, situated right at the bottom and half open to the sea, which can be entered at low tide. All the shellfish catchers know it. Ah, ten seconds wait. We're going through the passage, and it's very narrow, just the size of the submarine. But, asked Beautrelet, how is it that the fishermen who enter the lower cave don't know that it's open at the top and that it communicates with another from which a staircase starts and runs through the needle? The facts are at the disposal of the first comer. Wrong, Beautrelet. The top of the little public cave is closed at low tide by a movable platform, painted the colour of the rock. Which the sea, when it rises, shifts and carries up with it, and when it goes down, fastens firmly over the little cave. That is why I am able to pass at high tide. A clever notion, what? It's an idea of my own. True, neither Caesar nor Louis the Fourteenth, nor, in short, any of my distinguished predecessors could have had it, because they did not possess submarines. They were satisfied with the staircase, which then ran all the way down to the little bottom cave. I did away with the last treads of the staircase and invented the trick of the movable ceiling. It's a present I'm making to France. Raymond, my love, put out the lamp beside you. We shan't want it now. On the contrary. A pale light, which seemed to be of the same colour as the water, met them as they left the cave and made its way into the cabin through the two portholes and through a thick glass skylight that projected above the planking of the deck and allowed the passengers to inspect the upper layers of the sea. And suddenly a shadow glided over their heads. The attack is about to take place. The fleet is investing the needle. But, hollow as the needle is, I don't see how they propose to enter it. He took up the speaking tube. Don't leave the bottom, Charolais. Where are we going? Why, I told you, to Port Lupin. And at full speed, do you hear? We want water to land by. There's a lady with us. They skimmed over the rocky bed. The seaweed stood up on end like a heavy dark vegetation, and the deep currents made it wave gracefully, stretching and billowing like floating hair. Another shadow, a longer one. That's the torpedo boat, said Lupin. We shall hear the roar of the guns presently. What will Duguay Trouin do? Bombard the needle? Think of what we're missing, Beautrelet, by not being present at the meeting of Duguay Trouin and Ganimard, the juncture of the land and naval forces. Hi, Charolais, don't go to sleep, my man. They were moving very fast for all that. The rocks had been succeeded by sandfields, and then almost at once they saw more rocks which marked the eastern extremity of Etretat, the Port d'Amont. Fish fled at their approach. One of them, bolder than the rest, fastened onto a porthole and looked at the occupants of the saloon with its great, fixed, staring eyes. That's better, cried Lupin. We're going now. What do you think of my cockle shell, Beautrelet? Not so bad, is she? Do you remember the story of the Seven of Hearts? The wretched end of Lacombe, the engineer, and now, after punishing his murderers, I presented the state with his papers and his plans for the construction of a new submarine. One more gift to France? Well, among the plans, I kept those of a submersible motorboat, and that is how you come to have the honour of sailing in my company. He called to Charolais. Take us up, Charolais, there's no danger now. They shot up to the surface, and the glass skylight emerged above the water. They were a mile from the coast, out of sight, therefore, and Beautrelet was now able to realise more fully at what a headlong pace they were travelling. 
First Fécamp passed before them, then all the Norman seaside places, Saint-Pierre, the Petit Dalle, Verlette, Saint-Yallery, Verle, Quiberville. Lupin kept on jesting, and Isidore never wearied of watching and listening to him. Amazed as he was at the man's spirits, at his gaiety, his mischievous ways, his careless chaff, his delight in life. He also noticed Raymond. The young woman sat silent, nestling up against the man she loved. She had taken his hands between her own and kept on raising her eyes to him. And Beautrelet constantly observed that her hands were twitching and that the wistful sadness of her eyes increased. And each time it was like a dumb and sorrowful reply to Lupin's sallies. One would have thought that his frivolous words, his sarcastic outlook on life, caused her physical pain. Hush, she whispered. It's defying destiny to laugh. So many misfortunes can reach us still. Opposite Dieppe, they had to dive lest they should be seen by the fishing craft. And twenty minutes later, they shot at an angle towards the coast, and the boat entered a little submarine harbour formed by a regular gap between the rocks, drew up beside a jetty and rose gently to the surface. Lupin announced... Port Lupin. The spot, situated at sixteen miles from Dieppe and twelve from the Treport, and protected, moreover, by the two landslips of cliff, was absolutely deserted. A fine sand carpeted the rounded slope of the tiny beach. Jump on shore, Beautrelet. Raymond, give me your hand. You, Charolais, go back to the Needle, see what happens between Ganimard and Duguay-Chouin, and come back and tell me at the end of the day. The thing interests me tremendously. Beautrelet asked himself with a certain curiosity how they were going to get out of this hemmed-in creek which was called Port Lupin, when at the foot of the cliff he saw the uprights of an iron ladder. Isidore, said Lupin, if you knew your geography and your history, you would know that we are at the bottom of the gorge of Parfonval in the parish of Biville. More than a century ago, on the night of the 23rd of August, 1803, Georges Cadoudal and six accomplices who had landed in France with the intention of kidnapping the first consul, Bonaparte, scrambled up to the top by the road which I will show you. Since then, this road has been demolished by landslips, but Louis Valmarat, better known by the name of Arsène Lupin, had it restored at his own expense and bought the farm of the Neuvillette, where the conspirators spent the first night, and where, retired from business and withdrawing from the affairs of this world, he means to lead the life of a respectable country squire with his wife and his mother by his side. The gentleman burglar is dead. Long live the gentleman farmer. After the ladder came a sort of gully, an abrupt ravine hollowed out apparently by the rains, at the end of which they laid hold of a makeshift staircase furnished with a handrail. As Lupin explained, this handrail had been placed there, where it was in the stead of the estamperche, a long rope fastened to stakes by which the people of the country in the old days used to help themselves down when going to the beach. After a painful climb of half an hour, they emerged on the tableland, not far from one of those little cabins dug out of the soil itself, which serve as shelters for the excisemen. And as it happened, two minutes later, at a turn in the path, one of these custom-house officials appeared. He drew himself up and saluted. Lupin asked, Any news, Gomel? No, Governor. You have met no one at all suspicious-looking? No, Governor, only... What? My wife, who does dressmaking at the Neuvillette. Yes, I know, Césarine, my mother spoke of her. Well... It seems a sailor was prowling about the village this morning. What sort of face had he? Not a natural face, sort of Englishman's face. Ah, said Lupin in a tone preoccupied. And you have given Césarine orders? To keep her eyes open, yes, Governor. Very well. Keep a lookout for Charolais' return in two or three hours from now. 
If there's anything, I shall be at the farm. He walked on and said to Beautrelet, This makes me uneasy. Is it Shears? Ah, oh, if it's he, in his present state of exasperation, I have everything to fear. He hesitated a moment. I wonder if we hadn't better turn back. Yes, I have a nasty presentiment of evil. Gently undulating plains stretched before them as far as the eye could see. A little to the left, a series of handsome avenues of trees led to the farm of the Neuvillette, the buildings of which were now in view. It was the retreat which he had prepared, the haven of rest which he had promised Raymond. Was he, for the sake of an absurd idea, to renounce happiness at the very moment when it seemed within his reach? He took Isidore by the arm and calling his attention to Raymond, who was walking in front of them. Look at her. When she walks, her figure has a little swing at the waist, which I cannot see without quivering. But everything in her gives me that thrill of emotion and love. Her movements and her repose. Her silence and the sound of her voice. I tell you, the mere fact that I am walking in the track of her footsteps makes me feel in the seventh heaven. Ah, Beautrelet, will she ever forget that I was once Lupin? Shall I ever be able to wipe out from her memory the past which she loathes and detests? He mastered himself. And with obstinate assurance, she will forget, he declared. She will forget because I have made every sacrifice for her sake. I have sacrificed the inviolable sanctuary of the hollow needle. I have sacrificed my treasures, my power, my pride. I will sacrifice everything. I don't want to be anything more, but just a man in love and an honest man, because she can only love an honest man. After all, why should I not be honest? It is no more degrading than anything else. The quip escaped him, so to speak, unawares. His voice remained serious and free of all chaff, and he muttered with restrained violence. Ah, Beautrelet, you see, of all the unbridled joys which I have tasted in my adventurous life, there is not one that equals the joy with which her look fills me when she is pleased with me. I feel quite weak then, and I should like to cry. Was he crying? Beautrelet had an intuition that his eyes were wet with tears. Tears in Lupin's eyes. Tears of love. They were nearing an old gate that served as an entrance to the farm. Lupin stopped for a moment and stammered. Why am I afraid? I feel a sort of weight on my chest. Is the adventure of the hollow needle not over? Has destiny not accepted the issue which I selected? Raymond turned round, looking very anxious. Here comes Caesarine. She's running. The exciseman's wife was hurrying from the farm as fast as she could. Lupin rushed up to her. What is it? What has happened? Speak. Choking quite out of breath, Césarine stuttered. A man. I saw a man this morning. A man. I saw a man in the sitting room. The Englishman of this morning? Yes, but in a different disguise. Did he see you? No, he saw your mother. Madame Valmara caught him as he was just going away. Well? He told her he was looking for Louis Valmarat, that he was a friend of yours. Then? The madame said that her son had gone abroad for years. And he went away? No, he made signs through the window that overlooks the plain as if he were calling to someone. Lupin seemed to hesitate. A loud cry tore the air. Raymond moaned. It's your mother, I recognize. He flung himself upon her and dragging her away in a burst of fierce passion. Come, let us fly. You first. But suddenly he stopped, distraught, overcome. No, I can't do it. It's too awful. Forgive me, Raymond. That poor woman down there. Stay here. Beautrelet, don't leave her. 
He darted along the slope that surrounds the farm, turned and followed it at a run till he came to the gate that opens on the plain. Raymond, whom Beautrelet had been unable to hold back, arrived almost as soon as he did, and Beautrelet, hiding behind the trees, saw in the lonely walk that led from the farm to the gate three men, of whom one, the tallest, went ahead, while the two others were holding by the arms a woman who tried to resist and who uttered moans of pain. The daylight was beginning to fade. Nevertheless, Beautrelet recognized Holmlock Shears. The woman seemed of a certain age. Her livid features were set in a frame of white hair. They all four came up. They reached the gate. Shears opened one of the folding leaves. Then Lupin strode forward and stood in front of him. The encounter appeared all the more terrible inasmuch as it was silent, almost solemn. For long moments, the two enemies took each other's measure with their eyes. An equal hatred distorted the features of both of them. Neither moved. Then Lupin spoke in a voice of terrifying calmness. Tell your men to leave that woman alone. No. It was as though both of them feared to engage in the supreme struggle, as though both were collecting all their strength, and there were no words wasted this time, no insults, no bantering challenges. Silence. A death-like silence. Mad with anguish, Raymond awaited the issue of the duel. Beautrelet had caught her arms and was holding her motionless. After a second, Lupin repeated, Order your men to leave that woman alone. No, Lupin said. Listen, Shears. But he interrupted himself, realizing the silliness of the words. In the face of that colossus of pride and willpower which called itself Holmlock Shears, of what use were threats? Resolved upon the worst, suddenly he put his hand to his jacket pocket. The Englishman anticipated his movement, and, leaping upon his prisoner, thrust the barrel of his revolver within two inches of his temple. If you stir a limb, I fire. At the same time, his two satellites drew their weapons and aimed them at Lupin. Lupin drew himself up, stifled the rage within him, and coolly, with his hands in his pockets and his breast exposed to the enemy, began once more. Shears, for the third time, let that woman be, the Englishman sneered. I have no right to touch her, I suppose. Come, come, enough of this humbug. Your name isn't Valmarat any more than it's Lupin. You stole the name just as you stole the name of Chamaras. And the woman whom you pass off as your mother is Victoire, your old accomplice, the one who brought you up. She has made a mistake. Carried away by his longing for revenge, he glanced across at Raymond, whom these revelations filled with horror. Lupin took advantage of his imprudence. With a sudden movement, he fired. Damnation! bellowed Shears, whose arm, pierced by a bullet, fell to his side. And addressing his men, Shoot you two! Shoot him down! But already Lupin was upon them, and not two seconds had elapsed before the one on the right was sprawling on the ground with his chest smashed, while the other, with his jaw broken, fell back against the gate. Hurry up, Victoire, tie them down. And now, Mr. Englishman, it's you and I. He ducked with an oath. Ah, you scoundrel! Shears had picked up his revolver with his left hand and was taking aim at him. A shot, a cry of distress. Raymond had flung herself between the two men, facing the Englishman. She staggered back, brought her hand to her neck, drew herself up, spun round on her heels and fell at Lupin's feet. Raymond, Raymond! He threw herself upon her, took her in his arms and pressed her to him. Dead, he said. 
There was a moment of stupefaction. Shears seemed confounded by his own act. Victoire stammered. My poor boy! My poor boy! Beautrelet went up to the young woman and stooped to examine her. Lupin repeated, Dead. Dead. He said it in a reflective tone as though he did not yet understand. But his face became hollow, suddenly transformed, ravaged by grief. And then he was seized with a sort of madness, made senseless gestures, wrung his hands, stamped his feet, like a child that suffers more than it is able to bear. You villain! he cried suddenly in an excess of hatred. And flinging Shears back with a formidable blow, he took him by the throat and dug his twitching fingers into his flesh. The Englishman gasped without even struggling. My boy, my boy, said Victoire in a voice of entreaty. Beautrelet ran up. But Lupin had already let go and stood sobbing beside his enemy stretched upon the ground. Oh, pitiful sight! Beautrelet never forgot its tragic horror. He who knew all Lupin's love for Raymond and all that the great adventurer had sacrificed of his own being to bring a smile to the face of his well beloved. Night began to cover the field of battle with a shroud of darkness. The three Englishmen lay bound and gagged in the tall grass. Distant songs broke the vast silence of the plain. It was the farmhands returning from their work. Lupin drew himself up. He listened to the monotonous voices. Then he glanced at the happy homestead of the Neuvillette, where he had hoped to live peacefully with Raymond. Then he looked at her, the poor, loving victim whom love had killed, and who, all white, was sleeping her last eternal sleep. The men were coming nearer, however. Then Lupin bent down, took the dead woman in his powerful arms, lifted the corpse with a single effort, and, bent in two, stretched it across his back. Let us go, Victoire. Let us go, dear. Goodbye, Beautrelet, he said. And bearing his precious and awful burden, followed by his old servant, silent and fierce, he turned toward the sea and plunged into the darkness of the night. End of chapter 10. End of the Hollow Needle Further Adventures of Arsene Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. This recording is in the public domain. Whoa, it's raining like crazy right now. Crazy, crazy to hear anything like that happening in Portland or Oregon or wherever. Anyway, thank you for listening. I have been D.B. Spitzer. Remember to rate, review, subscribe. And uh, maybe I'll throw up some kind of Patreon one of these days and uh, update the t-shirt shop if people want to help out. If Hey, look at... Uh, Look at the Facebook, uh, let people know how to find out, out about us and all that fun stuff. All right. Thank you so much. Enjoy and have a good whatever. All right.